I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Jim Evans. Now, Jim, you're a mineralogist, right? Yes, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> uh, what is a mineralogist? Uh, well, a mineralogist is essentially somebody who studies minerals. Uh, minerals are kind of the, the basic materials that make up rocks. And it's um, actually there's a, an exact definition of what a mineral is. Um, it is. It has to be a naturally occurring solid. Uh, it has to be homogeneous, so it's only one phase of material. Um, it uh, has to be formed by inorganic processes, so it can't be man-made or uh, created by animals. And it has to have a distinct um, chemical formula, and it has to have a crystal, crystalline structure. So in other words, all of its atoms have to be uh, lined up in a regular way. It can't be sort of a random arrangement like in, in classes. Excellent. Uh, yeah, when I work with children, I always say they're the ingredients in rocks. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Mind you, I liken everything to food, so... <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, I'm curious, it, I've interviewed people at many different stages in their career. Uh, what stage are you at? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm at a stage right now where uh, it's been about, well, actually it's been, it's getting on close to about 15 years or so since I finished my PhD. And, um, I have worked in other people's lab doing research. And right now I'm sort of, I'm at a, a stage where I'm not actually in, I'm not engaged in research in a specific lab right now, but I'm mostly uh, teaching and doing a little bit of, of sort of research on my own on the side. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, I, I might describe it as, as sort of a, um, it kind of, it, it sounds like an intermediary, uh, sort of phase, but it's something that I'm, you know, if, if I were to continue on like this for, uh, indefinitely, I would be perfectly happy with it. Um, cause I, I enjoy teaching a lot. I like, uh, it's a lot of fun talking about science to people and, uh, I enjoy showing people, uh, students, things that I think are really cool about different parts of science, and it's um, uh, and it, it's it's relatively low pressure compared to uh, a sort of publish or perish um, mm -hmm. type of environment where you end up 
spending more of your time working on, on funding grants than on actually doing research. It's lower stakes until you have to give students their exam grades and yeah. uh, suddenly they everything you've graded is wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you study min- mineralogy your entire uh, school career? No, definitely not, actually. Um, I, I've always been interested in, I guess, you could call it, I could just say matter in one way or another uh, since I was quite young. And like I had a, um, I had sort of a, a, a pretend chemistry lab in my dad's workshop when I was in elementary school where I'd, I would mix up uh, uh, vinegar and baking soda and, and stuff like that and make fizzy concoctions. Um, and then eventually I decided that I wanted to be a physicist because everything was made of atoms and atoms were made of subatomic particles and physicists studied subatomic particles. So that's what I decided I wanted to do. So I did my undergraduate uh, in uh, mathematical physics with sort of the idea of becoming a, a theoretical physicist sort of a la Stephen Hawking or something like that. Um, and then I took my first particle physics course uh, in fourth year undergrad. And that was probably the hardest class I've ever taken in my life. I can imagine. So I decided, okay, so maybe particle physics isn't isn't for me. So after that, I kind of focused on solid state physics, which is um, kind of physics of things that happen inside solid materials. Um, so things like semiconductors and superconductors and, and stuff like that. And so that's kind of where I was uh, when I finished my undergraduate. And then uh, when I started my master's and, my, uh, and then later my, my PhD, I connected with a, a supervisor at the University of Ottawa who specialized in uh, Mossbauer spectroscopy. Uh, which is a technique that is is sensitive specifically to iron. And Mm -hmm. so I was in that project involved me doing uh, quantum mechanical calculations around uh, iron environments in micas. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I realized that minerals were the most interesting solid state materials that were out there because nature has had billions of years to synthesize all of these fascinating and diverse um, structures that, you know, where as, as humans, there's no way we can uh, hope to create some of those things in the lab. Um, like there are, are uh, materials in, in asteroids that, you know, have, annealed at rates of like one degree every hundred thousand or million years or something like that. Sorry, annealed? Uh, so uh, reduce in te- uh, kind of reduce or, or change in temperature. So yeah, so I, I after I finished my, my PhD, I decided that, yeah, I was, if I was going to continue being a kind of uh, person who did sort of quantum chemical type 
simulations, I wanted to do them on, on minerals. And eventually I just kind of wandered my way further into further and further into various geology departments uh, until I ended up working uh, with uh, Lee Croak at the at UBC. And uh, and so at that point Lee uh, Lee actually uh, he didn't want just a purely uh, theoretical mineralogist. He uh, um, he needed someone who would actually who could actually you know work in the lab. So for the first time, I actually dealt with real rocks rather than simulations of uh, of rocks. And um, yeah, and so from there, I learned. Uh, I sort of I picked up mineralogy and uh, kind of what uh, what undergraduate students learn in uh, their mineralogy courses in the first year of my postdoc and learn how to do x-ray diffraction and, and determine crystal structures of minerals myself. And so that's kind of how I ended up as a, as a mineralogist. So yeah, I kind of, I, I took a very circuitous route um, from uh, just generally being interested in matter to becoming a mineralogist. And do you find that your astrophysics background uh, benefits your mineralogy research? Yeah, to, to a degree, knowing uh, kind of the, the principles of solid state physics um, helps me to kind of think about minerals as materials rather than necessarily just strictly as, uh, as rock ingredients. And so I think in, in some ways it gives me uh, like a different perspective on them. And I think that that's, that's proven valuable in, in uh, several cases. You understand the building blocks of the building blocks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite mineral? Yes. Um, I, for several years when I was working with Lee, we, uh, did a survey of a mineral called demortierite, mm. and it's a aluminum borosilicate. So it is um, contains aluminum and silicon and boron uh, together with oxygen, and it has a really pretty crystal structure. And um, it turns out that it has all kinds of variations. Um, it's all kinds of different things that you can substitute for the aluminum or the silicon. Or, um, and it comes in, and it's one of those minerals that comes in many different colors. Like it's, uh, it's usually blue or sort of purplish, but it can be pink, it can be green, it can be brown, it can be white. Um, and I kind of like it in many ways because it's sort of, it's kind of a, uh, a niche uh, mineral. It's sort of like um, it, it's kind of like liking a, liking the mineral before it was cool. <laughs> but yeah, I, I basically I've studied I've studied demortierite for for such a long time that it's it's kind of become uh, it's it's like it's become my baby, and so it will it will uh, it will always be my favorite mineral. I think I think I think micas are sec are my second favorite mineral because I. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of my PhD and my master's working on those. Well, we're all just big kids, and yeah. every child loves mica. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I just found out that Demodiorite is what turns uh, quartz pink, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right, actually. That was, um, that was kind of one, one of the fun um, projects that I did while I was in, in Lee's lab was um, we found a paper that described a digestion process for dissolving away the quartz in um, rose quartz that contained demoitrite fibers. And for some reason, um, if you use hydrogen fluoride to dissolve away the quartz, uh, it will leave the demoitrite untouched. Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, but anyway, so I, I did, um, we did several rounds of, uh, try, of trying to uh, liberate some demoitrite from quartz and then uh, figure out what the crystal structure of that was, see if it was any, any different from um, sort of independent demoitrite, demoitrite that's, that's just growing free on, our, on a rock. Um, and fortunately, this project meant that I was working with hydrogen fluoride, which um, people who know chemistry know that hydrogen fluoride is, is one of the, the scarier common chemicals to work with. Um, so there was lots of, uh, lots of double and triple gloves and uh, had to use plastic containers because it ate through the glass. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was lots of fun. <laughs> A very big change from uh, back when I, I saw myself sitting at a desk doing math all day. Yes, yeah, the unexpected dangers of lab work. Yeah. People talk about field work as being super dangerous, but working in a lab can be uh, worse sometimes. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned um, learning about demordiorite and, and that exciting discovery, but have you made uh, any other discoveries that you'd care to share? Either personal discoveries or ones that rocked the world? I don't know if anything that uh, I've discovered had, could be say, said to have rocked the world. Um, over, the, over the course of my career, I've just, I found, discovered lots of little things that I think are really interesting. And, and one of the, the, the themes that I, I'm finding in my career is discovering parts of science that are, are connected to each other in unexpected ways. And so I think that's, that's kind of an abstract um, idea, but I'd say overall, that's probably the most interesting thing I've, I've discovered is just how unified everything can be um, when you uh, when you look deep enough into it, and um, uh, and that's really fascinating to me. One common thread that I'm finding with many of these interviews is people saying the or stating the immense value for uh, interdisciplinarianism. Um, mm. You can't just stick to your own field. You need to get an understanding of many different fields. And yeah. I think you just said that in a really eloquent way um, without overtly saying it. I think having having science siloed in in so many different um, disciplines that don't talk to each other is definitely is a, is a mistake. And I think that, 
I think chemists need to talk to mineralogists more, who need to talk to solid state physicists, who, you know, need to talk to uh, uh, other people who study aspects of, of solids. And so we're, we're one of the one of the things, one of the themes that seems to be emerging um, in the last 50 years of science is the importance of uh, interconnected systems and you can't and there's no there's no one scientific discipline that can uh, that can analyze those fully like it's uh, you know the, the climate crisis is not going to be solved by just oceanographers or meteorologists or physicists or chemists um, is that big problems like that involving big complex systems need people from all aspects of science uh, to talk to each other and and work on these these big problems and I think uh, I think it's the same it can even be said for for the small problems as well well I mean you work on a microscopic level that are all technically small problems yes yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> but they build up to become big problems yes yeah you get enough atoms together and they they add up to something. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you're teaching right now, but you're also doing some research. Um, what are you working on right now? So right now, I'm, I'm kind of trying to revive um, the sort of the, the calculation projects that I, I worked on uh, prior to becoming more of an ex experimentalist. Um, so when I was in my earlier postdocs and in my, uh, my graduate studies, I um, was working in an area that um, is, is broadly called quantum chemistry, which is um, taking the equations of quantum mechanics that describe how atoms, um, uh, that describe the, energy states of atoms and how they bond to other atoms in solids or in molecules and taking those equations and um, uh, solving them uh, basically with, with mass um, by doing lots and lots of small calculations over and over again and uh, sort of you iteratively can build up to approximations to what is actually uh, going on um, at local levels uh, in, a, in a molecule or, uh, or a solid material. And when I was doing, last time I, I um, was working in that field, uh, computers were, it was, it was harder to uh, run, run calculations of the scale required to kind of do interesting simulations of, uh, of molecules and chunks of solids that were large enough to, uh, to be interesting um, on anything but like large cluster computers, like, uh, you know, networks of, uh, of PCs all connected together to make a supercomputer or, or things like that. Like a SETI program, right? Yeah, kind of similar, similar kind of idea. Um, but now, a lot of those codes that 
I was working on uh, like 10, 15 years ago that were running on, uh, on small supercomputers, you can now run on a laptop. But today there are, are lots of um, like freely available codes that have been developed by scientists that uh, for other scientists that uh, you can that can be run on a personal computer. And so I'm kind of trying to set up my laptop in such a way that I could work on small, uh, small calculations to, to solve some small problems related to research that uh, I, I've been interested in in the past. And uh, you know, just see what kind of results I can get and uh, and then share those I maybe maybe in a, uh, a formal scientific publication maybe just on a blog somewhere so I'm kind of attempting to make a bit of a transition to uh, kind of independent scientist uh, while teaching you're basically uh, repeating what you did at the beginning of your career but using the tools of today uh, to be much more efficient yeah and you know, I've learned I've learned so many things since then mm-hmm. um, that I think a lot of these uh, a lot of a lot of problems which um, you know maybe might have taken me uh, three years to do ten years ago I can maybe do in a, in a few months now. Wow. Kids these days will never know the uh, the struggle of having to use an abacus in a blizzard going uphill both ways. I know. <laughs> Because that's how it was, young people. Yes. <laughs> In my day, we had to solve the Schrodinger equation by hand on mm-hmm. nothing but uh, with nothing but a Hillary notebook. And it wasn't a cat. It was Schrodinger's dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> you try getting an angry mammoth with a radioactive vial into a, into a box. Yeah, that's a big box. <laughs> now, do you do any field work or is it all lab work? Yeah, it's all... Um, like the hands-on science that I've done has all been been lab work, and uh, the majority of my, my career has actually been uh, uh, like simulation work. Um, when I was uh, working with the geologists in uh, in Lee's lab, they would uh, they would tease me uh, by trying to convince me to go out into the field with them. Um, but uh, I don't like being wet or cold or too hot or eaten by mosquitoes. So, <laughs> so um, I, let's just say that field work is not for me. Oh God, even walking at the bus stop some days. Oh, I just I want to get indoors. <laughs> but it's good to know that you can make these major uh, discoveries and learn so much about the earth uh, from the comfort of a well air conditioned lab. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's this, this, all of these, these different kinds of science are, are necessary and complement each other. Like we, need, we, need the, we need the mineralogists who go out into the field and observe, um, observe geology in its natural state and, and bring back the rocks so that mineralogists in a lab can, uh, can study them and get, gather data so that theoretical mineralogists uh, at a computer like me can... Uh, uh, can try and explain some of those results. Excellent. And you know, hopefully, hopefully those uh, explanations will be useful to those uh, those geologists out in the field in some way. Speaking of uh, being useful, uh, 
why is your research useful? Um, or what are the real world implications of understanding uh, what's going on at the subatomic level in a mineral? Minerals are at minerals are essentially chemical compounds. They are big fancy chemical compounds. And a lot of the effects that we see in minerals, like their optical properties and their chemical properties, are all results of uh, the interactions between the atoms uh, that make up their crystal structure. And a lot of a lot of things, uh, a lot of properties that uh, you want to understand or manipulate, you have to understand where they come from at the atomic level. And so I would say probably a lot of the research that I have done has been more kind of fundamental, um, explanatory, uh, background research rather than things that are directly applicable. Um, things that just sort of contribute to a greater general understanding of how crystal structures work, how minerals are, are put together at, uh, at the most fundamental level. And I believe that if we, we understand that well enough, at some point, that will help us uh, understand how minerals behave in the environment better. Um, understand things like mineral water interactions, uh, how minerals form, and maybe ultimately help us to understand how we can better make some of our own fantastic materials in, in the lab, which uh, which might make our lives better or help solve some of the, some of the big problems that, uh, of today. You just took something that sounds very abstract and um, uh, very high-level science and made it very personal. Uh, <laughs> I, I've had a lot of practice. Uh, <laughs> when you're, when you're, you're, your type of science is as abstract as mine, you often find yourself having to explain why it's worth doing. <laughs> you're not just doing it because it's interesting to you, although it certainly yeah. is. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh no, make no mistake, I'm doing it because it's interesting to me. Oh, but. Yes. <laughs> but you are also building the world of tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ultimately, that, that's sort of, that's the, that's the ultimate uh, uh, sort of sky in the pie goal uh, at the end of the, the process. And also, we can't understand a landscape without understanding the rocks underfoot. Uh, we can't understand those rocks without understanding the minerals that go into them. And right. we can't understand those minerals unless we understand why they are and why they behave the way that they do. Right, yeah. So you're just advancing the frontier of science uh, one step deeper because we already understand the other stuff. Yeah. And like all science is, it's very, it's incremental. It's it's lots of people making lots of tiny steps that over time uh, add up to, to greater advances in, uh, in understanding. When I, one of the things that inspired me um, to become a scientist when I was young was reading about you know, famous physicists like, uh, you know, like Enrico Fermi or Richard Feynman or Albert Einstein. And you sort of, I think a lot of times when you read about science, um, 
it's often told kind of in that sort of paradigm as you know, science advances through uh, the accomplishments of you know, a few very talented individuals. But I think that equally or, or possibly even far more important is this sort of more incremental uh, process of um, you know people who aren't Richard Feynman or um, or insert famous geologist here uh, <laughs> doing their work and making making small discoveries and incremental improvements to knowledge uh, because when conditions are right somebody somewhere is going to be able to make those big discoveries because of all of the work of uh, lots and lots of other people before. And in many cases, um, the giants that we built in scientific history uh, only seem like giants because the way that we recorded history at that time was to celebrate the one individual and right. ignore the community of uh, scientists around them who were contributing just as much, if not more, than the one celebrated scientist. Exactly. And it's... Um, and it's 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 very it's very culture dependent. Um, like we have like ninety nine point nine percent of the the great scientists that we have these stories about are all uh, white European men, mm -hmm. and it's absurd to think that people who didn't fit that category weren't doing silent science for. Uh, decades or centuries alongside all of these other uh, famous people. And it's just that their stories, um, because of the kind of societies that, that uh, we've lived in, haven't, haven't survived and come down to be retold. And uh, I, hope that that is, I hope that is changing now. I hope that um, now we have bet a better appreciation of uh, the accomplishments of, uh, of women scientists and, and uh, scientists of color in the past than, um, uh, than we used to. Absolutely. Uh, and science is becoming a more diverse field with yeah. um, people of all walks of life. Uh, which actually leads me to my next question. Um, you are a Caucasian male, but do you uh, identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your studies in any way? Uh, I identify as bisexual. Uh, I have been married to my wife for about five years. Um, and I think a lot of bisexual men and women in uh, heterosexual relationships often have a bit of an identity crisis. Um, you know, you, you sort of, you, you question that, you, you end up questioning that, that identity and, um, uh, you know, you often, you can feel like, you know, you're not, um, you know, you're not a, a, a proper queer person. Um, I wouldn't say that it's something that has impacted my, uh, my career very much because it's just, it's not really something that has ever come up, uh, in my, in my day to day career. But especially as I'm getting older and 
maybe more comfortable. Um, I'm sort of com I'm coming to realize that it's maybe it's something that's that's important to talk about, just so that um, people who are interested in science can have this uh, are able to understand that uh, you know science is is for everyone, no matter how they might identify. Especially in a field like um, earth science or geology or mineralogy, yeah. where it has this reputation for being very uh, heterocentric. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you come into this building, you realize you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a queer person in this building. <laughs> and that's both an SPCA violation and a hate crime. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, don't do it. Yes. <laughs> in any building, but especially yeah. this building. Do you find that mineralogy is a really open and welcoming field, or is it more closed off or insular, or a combination of the two? Um, I, you know what, I, I'm not sure how to answer that, that question. Mineralogy is, I think it is viewed in sort of the wider sciences as, um, as a very old-fashioned discipline of science. Um, and possibly it might attract and, and and you know possibly maybe it attracts a lot of old-fashioned people but you know i've never as speaking as a white man uh, i i have never um i i have never observed it to be unwelcoming but then i'm definitely in a position of privilege there um, I think that, uh, geological sciences as a whole are more welcoming than, um, the areas of, of science that I, that I, I came from. Hmm. Um, when I was in undergraduate, physics was a very, uh, uh a very male dominated field. And, uh, I don't know whether or how much that's changed in the uh, uh, the 25 years since I finished my undergraduate. I hope it's changed. Um, but even at the time, there were, um, you know, far more, um, there were far more women and, and people of color in, in biology and geology than there were in physics. Um, and I think probably a lot of that might have to do with the, the sort of this, the societal idea um, that, uh, oh, specifically for women, that quote unquote girls can't do math, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous because some of the some of the uh, uh, the smartest mathematicians I've known have all been women. <laughs> I'm not sure where that idea got started from, or I crawled out of some cave somewhere. Yeah. It's probably intentional. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to know that at least we rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of um, lab work, uh, I know that when you're working in the lab, um, things can go haywire and it can be terribly frustrating for you, mm -hmm. but it can be terribly comedic and um, hilarious for me. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any... Um, haywire lab stories that you care to share? Yes. Um, it actually, this relates back to something we were talking about uh, earlier, was these um, hydrogen fluoride 
digestions that I was working on with Demortuite. Um, so while I was working on, on that project, uh, I did something you're never supposed to do. And I went in uh, on the weekend and worked in the lab on my own. And so I, uh, I was looking at this, um, this little plastic jar that I had with the digested quartz and demotrite and hydrogen fluoride in it. And I was do, following the very scientific procedure of poking it with a stick, <laughs> um, sort of a, a stir stick to kind of mix, mix it around and sort of try and, and distribute the reaction or, or whatever it was that I, I thought I was doing. And all of a sudden, I guess I must have hit a pocket of something in the container because I suddenly got this strong whiff of uh, some, some very acrid smell, uh, kind of almost reminiscent of pool chemicals. And, and then, and, and my, my stomach just absolutely sank and I said, oh my God, I just inhaled uh, hydrofluoric acid. <laughs> and so after kind of dithering for a few minutes, I, I walked my way, I, I walked over to the, um, uh, the emergency room of the UBC hospital. And I told them, oh, I think I may have inhaled some hydrogen fluoride. <laughs> and so um, they had, so, and so I was, I was sitting there in the emergency room and a, uh, a, doc a doctor came and, and had a look at me. And he was, fortunately he was someone who, uh, when he was an intern, had seen someone who actually had inhaled hydrogen fluoride and knew how ugly it could be. And, um, and he was able to, to confirm for me that I was, I appeared to be okay. And that if I actually had, in, if it actually had been hydrofluoric acid that I had inhaled, uh, I probably wouldn't be walking around uh, quite as, uh, as happily as I was then. Uh, so I had to go home and, uh, I never actually told, uh, Lee or, uh, <laughs> who was my lab supervisor about that, uh, which is probably, which I probably was supposed to do and they probably was supposed to have been a report written about it. But, uh, I was just very embarrassed that I had done this stupid thing. <laughs> the number of times we have to ask our doctors in all seriousness, um, could this be an indication of uh, a side effect of being exposed to hydrofluoric acid? Yes. Or a number of times I've had to ask, could this be a result of radiation poisoning? Yes. <laughs> because I certainly wasn't doing something I wasn't supposed to do. Yeah, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I can totally empathize. And yeah, you sweep that under the rug. Yeah. This is one of the stories that I, I told my wife that has her convinced that uh, you know my life is uh, my work is basically a superhero origin story. Yes, that too. <laughs> and it's also why I say that I'm middle aged, even though I'm in, in my mid thirties, because I know I'm going to die young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm just I'm just waiting for you know all of the the uh, the chemicals and uh, uh, 
powdered lead sulfates and things that I've worked with in the past to catch up with me. Oh yeah, you'll either live forever or die tomorrow. Yeah. You clearly love your work. Um, you love everything about it, uh, not just the research, but the teaching uh, and just the general thrill of discovery. Uh, but what would you say is the best part of your work? Oh, I think this is, I think there's two things. Um, I think the one is just being able to talk about something that I'm really interested in and excited about uh, to other people. Um, like, the, uh, especially the classes that like I, I, I teach one class here in Earth and Ocean Sciences, and I teach a couple of, of higher level classes in the Integrated Sciences program at UBC as well. And those classes in, in particular, um, I get to interact with the, the students quite a lot, and uh, I've had some of the best conversations about, uh, about science uh, in those classes. And that's one of the things that I, uh, uh, I enjoy most, uh, specifically about teaching. Um, about research itself, I think one of my favorite things to do is when I have a, uh, a paper or a collection of papers on some mineral and I'm trying to understand what its structure is and to just be able to sit um, sit with a cup of tea or, or something and just work out how does this crystal structure work? How is it put together? And, um, and that, I get a lot of satisfaction out of, out of doing that. I've, I've compared it to listening to Bach uh, in the past. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's um, I don't know, maybe, it, maybe it's, some, it's a, a pleasure that's unique to me, but it's something that I enjoy just uh, Richard Feynman had a, um, uh, a lecture and I think a, uh, a book titled after that lecture called the, the Pleasure of Finding Things Out. And I think that at its base is, uh, is the thing that I enjoy the most. It's the act of discovery. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Except you're discovering a microscopic world. Yeah. <laughs> Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, aside from the occasional whiff of uh, hydrofluoric acid, um, what is the worst part about your work or the most challenging mm -hmm. part? I'd say without question, um, and this comes from the teaching side, is answering emails. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> answering, answering emails from students. And... Um, Sometimes it feels like that is the majority of the task of uh, university teaching. Um, I am, uh, I, I have had um, social anxiety quite a bit over, over my life. And even today I'm still, I still get nervous every time a new email comes into my inbox and it can be, it can be quite a chore, you know, even just um, shooting back a, a one one line reply. And of all of the things that I do on a day to day basis in uh, in my work, both scientific and, and and teaching, that is the one thing I think that kind of saps my energy the most. 
I think we've all received an email from someone which is uncharacteristically uh, brusque or even rude. And you have to read it a few times to realize what mindset that person was in when they sent it. And then you realize, oh, they just weren't thinking and they banged something out and sent it off. Yeah. Um, But email really is one of the worst forms of communication. Yes. I actually have a a good story about that. Um, On a a project that I was was working on uh, with Lee, uh, we were studying a... uh, a set of minerals called Harkerite and Sackite. Uh, and they, they're like Demoitrite, they are aluminum borosilicates. And, um, oh no, actually, pardon me, they're actually calcium, calcium borosilicates. Um, I have to get that right. People will write it up. Um, <laughs> and uh, we followed kind of the same procedure that we had with the project, we gathered set different samples of these minerals from as many localities around the world as, as we could. And a lot of them came from the former Soviet Union, like uh, the uh, Sakhite itself gets its name from the Sakha Republic in Russia, which is uh, one of the uh, large um, areas near Siberia. And so some of the, most of the, most of our samples had fairly complete locality information. Um, meaning we knew, uh, you know, where they came from, uh, like sort of township, mine, frequently province, uh, of the, uh, um, of the state, etc. Um, but there was one or two that we had that just simply said Sakha Republic. <laughs> and if you look at the Sakha, at a map of Russia, uh, you see the Sakha Republic is huge and there were several areas very far apart um, within this state that uh, were sources for this mineral. This was a loan from the Smithsonian Institution. And so um, I sent off an email to uh, a curator at the, with the mineral collection at the Smithsonian, um, politely asking, uh, hey, we have these sample numbers uh, of sakite from the collection, and uh, the only locality information that we have is Sakha Republic. Do you maybe have some additional um, information on where these samples came from? And I received back a very brusque reply from this, from the, um, the curator saying to the effect of, no, we don't have any additional information. This was collected in the 1980s and we were lucky even to get it at the time. And it very much had came across to me like, um, some, like there was this Cold War era mineralogist, uh, <laughs> annoyed by this pesky kid asking about where this rock came from. And uh, uh, I share this story with my wife and she that's one that she very much enjoys and she likes telling people that I got told off by the Smithsonian. <laughs> that is a badge of honor, certainly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, and you know, I'm sure that, again, this was, uh, like, no offense was probably meant mm-hmm. whatsoever. 
by this 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 brusque reply. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just it made it it it. I think it makes for a, a, an interesting incident. <laughs> We've been trying to geotag uh, all the specimens in our collection as well, and some of our students get. Uh, very concerned when they see the tag just says USSR mm -hmm. and they don't even know which republic, which uh, current country it is, and so they tag it as being from Moscow. And so, <laughs> according to our collection, Moscow is very geologically diverse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, emails aside, um, regardless of the field of work that you're in, uh, one thing that's really sucked uh, the past two years has been the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, doing most of your work in a lab, uh, were you cushioned and insulated from some of the impacts or were you impacted at all? Yeah, well, it um, in some ways it uh, didn't have a huge effect on me because um, a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of my work is computer-based and uh, my wife and I actually we live on uh, fortunate enough to to live on campus, um, so I still had access to whatever facilities were open at the time. Um, and of the courses that I teach, one of them uh, was a distance education course, so there was no okay. no change in that. But um, it also meant that, of course, all the labs were closed. Uh, I wasn't able to do any crystal structure collections, um, or uh, you know, come into the come into the lab uh, and do any work in there. And the courses that I taught that were that were in person, uh, they, I had to adjust those quite a lot because um, my my approach that I took with those those classes was always that I wanted to try and make it as uh, activity and demonstration based as I could. Um, because a lot of the material was sort of abstract and, and kind of mathematical adjacent. And actually having the students uh, do things like look at, look at crystal models and uh, try and determine their symmetry or you know, do sample calculations of some kind. That was, uh, that I felt was often a lot more valuable to them than listening to me talk. And so without in-person teaching, um, I really had to kind of scramble to figure out how, how am I going to replace that component of, of the courses. And um, so I'm really, really looking forward to a September um, when uh, we go back to in-person teaching and I actually get to interact with students again and we get to do stuff and then get to hear them ask me questions and, and, and so uh, because I think that was absolutely the, the thing that I, I missed the most was actually being able to interact with students in person while I was teaching. You have to balance out the, uh, the lecture with the active learning yeah absolutely and like i say i i, I try and <clears throat> make as much active learning as i can it's often the, the topics that we deal with that can be difficult but uh um you know i look at it this way not only does 
having them do these active learning activities uh, actually teach them more. But in, in any class where they're doing an activity is a class that I don't actually have to talk. <laughs> <laughs> the real truth comes out. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, a good secret for any profs who are holding out on active learning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, if anyone's listening to you right now and wants to become a microscopic mineralogist, um, what courses or experience or background would you recommend that they pursue to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's a, uh, a good question. I because um, I didn't have a traditional mineralogy education, uh, like I I. I'm a mineralogist who's never taken a mineralogy course. Um, I would say that probably uh, the uh, you know if you uh, I, I'd say probably the best best way to approach it um, is to just learn as much about rocks as you can um, and. Uh, you know, learn as much chemistry as you can. And I think, but the most important thing I think is, um, so try and is, yeah, is, is be as general, I guess, as you can. Like, um, like I, we were talking before about, uh, you know, science being in, in silos. And um, I find, found that sort of the, um, those kind of more general science uh, backgrounds have been a lot more useful than a lot of the really hyper-specific stuff. So, um, you know, whatever, whatever science field, um, you know, you, you find yourself in, I think, um, you know, don't, don't be afraid to, uh, uh, you know, take, take classes that are outside of your, your immediate specialty. Take, you know, learn about stuff that you're just interested in. Um, you know, keep a, uh, you know, don't, don't dismiss things just because they are not in the field that you're interested in. Like, you know, talk to people outside of your field. Um, you know, keep, keep as, uh, uh, try to be kind of as, as most, uh, just a broad scientist rather than any specific ologist as you can. And I think that that, that ultimately, uh, um, you know, that ultimately serves, uh, you know, serve people the best, you know, you, uh, um, whatever you find, eventually find yourself, uh, uh, studying, you'll be ready for it. <laughs> well, it's like you said before, it's a fairly open and welcoming field. So there's no one narrow path to get into it. Yeah. Um, come with your own diverse background and you may uh, be the missing piece on a broad team. Yeah, exactly. Like whatever your your background is, like you're bringing something that's uniquely you to it. So, uh, um, you know, don't uh, don't be afraid to branch out like that. I guess. You mentioned earlier that you had some world famous uh, scientists who inspired you uh, at a young age. But I'm curious, when you were going through the grueling process of getting your master's and PhD, uh, did you have anyone who uh, inspired you to keep going? Um, 
I think probably the, the people who inspired me the most were, you know, maybe not necessarily the professors um, that I worked with, but you know, the my fellow graduate students, uh, the postdocs in the labs, sort of, um, you know, people who were kind of going through the same process, the, the same um, steps or, or slightly different steps, but still on that same road as, as I was kind of, um, you know, you uh, definitely having, having uh, people, sh people to share those experiences with, I think is the, was the thing that I found the most, uh, I guess the most inspiring. And, you know, being able to, uh, you know, look at, look at the postdocs who were, you know, maybe five years ahead in their career of where I was and, you know, seeing, seeing what they're doing and, and, you know, how they're, uh, how they're putting their careers together. I think that was probably the thing that inspired me to keep going the most, as well as, you know, the, um, uh, the experiences that I shared with other, other grad students, uh, you know, not necessarily grad students in the same research group, uh, but uh, we actually we had a, um, I was very fortunate when I was at the University of Ottawa to share an office with a number of different groups of uh, graduate students who, uh, whose, whose supervisors were studying very different things from what my supervisor was studying. Uh, like as I mentioned, we, our supervisor was studying uh, Moscow spectroscopy and uh, iron-based minerals. And the other research group in the same open office as us, uh, their supervisor was studying electric eels and, uh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, doing... Uh, uh, doing modeling of, uh, of, of the signals in electric eels brains and things. And, you know, just, I think just being able to, um, you know, share experiences with people who are, are, um, you know, studying different things. It's just, it was just a lot of fun. That's something I noticed with our grad students as well. Uh, they look out for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, they raise each other up and praise each other at every opportunity. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to that question I asked earlier, where I asked if the field is open and uh, welcoming or uh, insular. Yeah. And they're both. Uh, they're open and welcoming. And as soon as you join their ranks, uh, you're one of them. Yeah. And they, they insulate you from um, the harshness of the world. Yeah. And your family. Yeah. Because um, I, I think a lot of, I know I certainly found, I think a lot of graduate students find Grad school is is can be a really tough go, mm -hmm. and um, you know I if if uh, you know undergraduates now who would ask me about you know grad school I often would you know tell them that uh, you know it, it is it's hard and um, you know I maybe necessary wouldn't necessarily recommend it unless it's you know. You abs what you want to do absolutely requires a, a PhD. Um, but if you are if you you are going through it, you absolutely yeah you need that you need that support network of other people who are doing who are uh, going through those same experiences as you. 
just as scientific discoveries aren't made by one person, um, a grad degree is yeah. the result of a communal effort. Yeah, you could say scientists aren't made by just one person either. <laughs> exactly. When you get out of grad school, you're going to have to work with other people anyway. So, yeah. Uh, this is part of the training. Yeah. Uh, do you have any grad students? No, no. I'm... Uh, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a sessional lecturer, so I don't actually have uh, a lab or take on individual students myself. Um, I'm just, uh, yeah, I, um, I basically, all I do is, uh, all I do is teach. And then, as I say, I, I do a little bit of research in my spare time. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you get to do all the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of all, sometimes it, it's almost sounds like it's not fair how it worked out that way, but, uh, <laughs> I'll be sure to tell the research faculty that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want you to look to the long term now. You're about mid-career. What would you like to have as your professional legacy uh, when you retire? Or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone uh, when you put it to rest? Yeah. Um, I, I think, ultimately, I think, uh, like, I would, I would like for... Um, you know, people who've taken, uh, students that I've had in, uh, in my classes, I, I would like them to be able to think back to, you know, maybe at least one or two things that they learned in my classes and that, you know, things that kind of fired up their imaginations for whatever reason. Um, cause I have various professors, both grad school and undergraduate who, um, uh, uh, you know, I, there's specific things I remember learning from them that, you know, have stayed with me. And uh, uh, I, would, I would like to be able to uh, kind of inspire undergraduates kind of in, in the same way that, you know, maybe not to the degree that they want to model their career after me, but just, you know, um, I want to have I, I want to have uh, them to to um, think back on on you know something something I taught them that it, that excited them for some reason. Uh, science wise, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, I talked before about uh, how a lot of what I do is is a kind of basic research with far off applications. Um, if you know maybe in uh, uh, maybe decades. From now, if uh, uh, some paper that I uh, I wrote turns out to have unexpected uh, applications uh, or uh, inspires some younger scientists at that time, then then that would make me happy. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally empathize with um, wanting to just inspire someone for the sake of inspiring them, not necessarily to change the trajectory of their career, but just to know that you got them passionate about learning for a little bit because being passionate about learning is sometimes the best we can hope for. Yeah. We, you know, you can't uh, convert everyone who comes to your class into being a mineralogist. There yeah. aren't enough positions for that and that would be a disservice, but you can inspire them to want to learn about the world. Yeah. And I think that, I think that there is this so many fascinating things that are, are worth learning. Uh, that uh, uh, yeah, I, I I love I I love to be able to share those things that 
I have found fascinating with other people and, uh, uh, and you know, hope that uh, at least a few of those things they will also find fascinating. I'm going to say in the long term now, um, I find that every field is changing at lightning speed these days. Um, and the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable by the time that they retire. So what trends do you see emerging in mineralogy? Where do you see the field going? And what advice do you have for young people uh, to anticipate some of these changes coming down the pipe? Yeah. Um, mineralogy today is already very different from classical mineralogy that, you know, are our graduates or postdoctoral supervisors um, experience. There is uh, um, something like 4,000 recognized mineral species uh, on Earth right now. And, uh, you know, mineral, new mineral samples that are, the, new minerals that are discovered uh, are often very small, like micro crystals found in meteorites or, uh, uh, you know, in uh, a few crystals on, uh, uh, you know, on a, on a rock sample. And I think that at some point, um, and I think at some point mineralogy is going to come to the end of its, I guess we can call it its data gathering phase that um, you know, eventually this, like there are still many new minerals discovered every year, but I think inevitably this is going to, inevitably this, this kind of, this cataloging is going to, uh, is going to slow down and um, you know, the focus of mineralogy, mineralogy itself uh, will shift in some way. Um, one, important uh, theme that I, I've noticed in the literature is um, uh, evolution of minerals. Like, um, how did this, this vast panoply of, of minerals on Earth come to be? Like, why are there so many different minerals on Earth? What is, what is Earth's mineralogical evolutionary history, basically? Um, and mineralogists are starting to, to build models of that. Um, I think, I think something else is, I think increasingly, um, more and more, um, I think there's going to be increasing amounts of like dialogue between, uh, solid state physicists, people who make synthetic materials and mineralogy. Um, I think that, uh, I think that already there is not nearly enough discussion between the two fields as there should be. Um, and I think that, uh, inevitably one field or the other is going to, uh, have to come to the other in order to re really understand how, how solids, how solid materials work. Um, I think maybe even thinking longer term, um, I think eventually, I think eventually we're going to start to see 
cataloging of minerals that don't occur on Earth, but do incur, occur naturally on other planets. Um, a few years ago, there, uh, it was the um, uh, space probe did, did a flyby of, of Pluto. And I was fascinated by the colors uh, mm -hmm. on the planet and, and its moon. And it's all of these, these reddish brown colors. And it turns out that these are um, these organic, uh, it turns out that these are organic compounds that um, I guess essentially they fall, they settle on the, on the, the, uh, the distant planets like Pluto as kind of like from, uh, from the cosmos. And they're phases that they are naturally occurring on these distant icy worlds, but they're not even stable on Earth. And when you say organic, do you mean like carbon based? Yeah, or yeah, not like, oh, okay. yeah, like, um, you know, exotic, uh, exotic carbon based uh, uh, materials. And I think eventually when, um, you know, when uh, astronomy and exploration of the other planets in our, our solar system reaches the point where either we we are able to gather samples, um, you know, maybe by hand or or by robotic probes, we're going to have to rethink what our definition of a of a mineral is um, to accommodate these exotic environments that don't uh, that don't exist on Earth. And that's something that I find find really exciting, and uh, and I kind of hope that. This sort of uh, exo mineralogy, um, you know, that I get to uh, get to live to see some of the the uh, exotic discoveries that I think are out there in that uh, in that field. Yeah, you can combine things in ways that uh, traditional mineralogy would say is her heretical. <laughs> yeah, like um, all like on Earth, all of our so many of our minerals form uh, in water in in lakes and oceans and, and rivers. And, but if you have on, uh, on planets like, or on worlds like the, the moons of, of Jupiter, where they have, some of the moons have oceans of methane, what kind of minerals are forming at the bottom of those oceans? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it may be, it may be many generations before we're able to to learn about those materials, but I think I think that uh, um, you know I, I think that if we're if we're able to avoid roasting ourselves in a uh, as a climate greenhouse, I think eventually we will be able we will start learning about those, and I think that as I say, I think that's very exciting. Okay, Jim, final question. Yes, most important question: Is ice a mineral? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful, you pass. <laughs> <laughs> it is in ice is in fact one of the weirdest minerals on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> All 
I always tell the students that it's a very contentious mineral, uh, but in my books, it is absolutely a mineral, mm -hmm. and I explain why. Mm -hmm. And I always end off by saying that means that when I take a sip of water, I'm technically drinking lava, and that just delights me to no end. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it fits all of the criteria. And uh, yeah, I never thought of uh, never thought of drinking water as drinking lava, but from now on, I will. <laughs> It's the superpower you've manifested with all those chemicals. Exactly. <laughs> Jim, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Uh, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Um, you know what? I know. I, I think uh, uh, I think you've, you've got me talking about far more than uh, I'm qualified to talk about already. So... <laughs> As is the, the, uh, the nature of academia. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your passion and your knowledge and your stories and for putting mineralogy in a light that I haven't seen it before. Oh, no, no problem. Thank you very much for, for having me. As I, as I said, I, I, there's talking about science and things that get me excited about science is one of my favorite things to do. And, uh, you know, to have this opportunity to, to do that is fantastic. So thank you very much for, for having me on and giving me that, that opportunity. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.